Now I got you napkin demands here of what you want for peaceful surrender and the safe release of my guard you're holding captive. As warden, I can uh, approve buying a copy of Dance with Dragons for the prison library to go up on the Game of Thrones shelf. <laughs> now, the only, the only problem is that uh, The Winds of Winter and uh, Dream of Spring have yet to be published, so those aren't available. No. Well, I can't do anything about what I can't control. That is total bullshit. George R.R. R. Martin was supposed to deliver the Winds of Winter to his publisher over two years ago. I know that was the original deadline. That's what it says here. But I'm reading to you from the Wikipedia page. It also says that Martin had a grueling promotion schedule or something, and it's interfered with his writing schedule. He's failed to complete the Winds of Winter. That don't make no sense. Those two guys who transferred in from Federal last month knew about all the new stuff with the hot chick and our dragons. Now, I'm telling you, I believe those two inmates had that information from watching a TV series. Again, I'm reading to you, the series has jumped ahead. It's no longer following the book. Stumbled onto the sleeping giant. Let's broaden our minds. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sleeping Giant Podcast. I am your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. This entry is going to be pretty straightforward and With HBO having put Game of Thrones to rest with its final episode this month, we're going to focus on A Song of Ice and Fire and the HBO series exclusively. Joining me for this Game of Thrones special will be Maggie Ransom, my wife, lover, and baby mother. We're going to chat for a while about our mutual love of Westeros and its characters, and what we think may have gone wrong in the final season of Game of Thrones as well as what we think maybe they got right. So stick with me after my conversation with Maggie, as I did receive a very thoughtful voicemail from Mr. Mike Winks of the Doctor Who Target Files podcast. I'm very much looking forward to sharing Mike's thoughts with you all and offering a response. So y'all go on and get comfy. We are about to begin. Alrighty, Maggie, you with me? Yep. All right, well, it's good to have you back. Thank you for joining me for this Game of Thrones episode. Wouldn't miss it. That's, I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, you literally wouldn't miss it as you would be here, regardless, I think, of whether or not you were joining me on the mic. So for that, I am grateful. Now, I, I wanted to have you here with me because Game of Thrones as a series has wrapped. Its final episode aired a couple of Sundays ago, so... With you, I'd like to take a look back at the HBO show and maybe talk about the source material just a little bit, A Song of Ice and Fire. So if you want to do that. Okay. Awesome. Have you have you gotten anything new going on since you were last on the show? I think the last episode you were on, you were working on Galactic Files and maybe Empire Strikes Back. No, uh, Galactic Files was that a was one of my first Oh, yeah. Um, what I'm am I thinking of? On, I was doing the black and white. Was it? Um, Empire Strikes Back, mm. I think. Um, that was uh, when we did Crimes of Grindelwald, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, right now, I am I'm actually, I've taken a job for another company, Upper Deck, uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with. Um, so I'm doing Chasing Amy for them, the uh, Kevin Smith film. And I also just wrapped... Uh, 
uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Tops. Sweet. And I've seen those, the ones for turtles, and I'm pretty stoked about it. Yeah, they were really fun. It was very different from anything I've done for them so far. For um, Tops? Yeah, you know, because uh, you got to be a little more loose and cartoony with the with the artwork. So that was a lot of fun. And was there any specific reason for that? What do you mean? Were you given a little bit more freedom with the character design? No, just because uh, we were working specifically from the earlier comics, um, the Kevin Eastman and I can't remember his first name, but Laird. Peter Laird. Peter Laird. Yeah, um, and because it's comic book art, you know, of course it's going to be more cartoony. I wasn't working for many of the films or anything. Ah, okay. Well, that does make a lot more sense. So they're not pushing the photorealism, I would assume. No. Since but, it wasn't um, photorealistic to begin with. Yeah, uh, but I do have to jump kind of right back into that with Chasing Amy. Um, but of course, Upper Deck seems to be a little looser. Uh, and they give the artists, um, you know, not saying anything against tops, just uh, Upper Deck seems to be more open to your personal interpretation of things. So if that gotcha. tends to be kind of comic y or cartoony, I think they're a little more open to that. So are artists, you think they're a little bit more able to utilize their own expressive style? Yeah, yeah. Instead of um, it always being, we want, you know, as photorealistic as possible, uh, they seem more interested in getting your personal style, whatever that may mm. be. That's awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm definitely looking forward to the set on the whole. That might be the first <laughs> upper deck set that I pick up. Yeah, it's kind of kind of difficult at this point because I've almost forgotten what my personal style is because I've been doing photorealistic for so long. Yeah, I, I can kind of relate to that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, I guess I, I kind of relate to that and give you no elaboration whatsoever. <laughs> we'll just we'll just keep that a mystery for the time being. I Explain had another. Yeah, I had another life once upon a time. Um, okay. Well, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones as you guys probably figured out, and while it's on my mind and on the tip of my tongue, I want to go ahead and say that that is Game of Thrones, the HBO show. We'll be talking about the books too, but I think it's important to make that distinction between the HBO series title, Game of Thrones, and the first book, which is A Game of Thrones. Yeah, and the series is titled A Song of Ice and Fire. Unlike the show, the series is just called A Game of Thrones. Which is pretty cool because that can be interpreted so many different ways depending on how you want to look at it. You know, speaking of the Game of Thrones, uh, whereas the first book as a title, it's you know offering you the idea of a Game of Thrones, which I think is really cool. Um, but anyway, so the uh, the show primarily is, I guess, what we're going to focus on because it did end the series finale ended, uh, or rather, the series finale aired a couple of weeks ago, and uh, and it started, I guess. Um, what, eight years ago? Nine years ago? Something like that? Uh, 2011, I believe. Was it really? Yeah. Yep. April 17, 2011 mm-hmm. was the premiere. And how did you come about Game of Thrones? When did that first come into your orbit, so to speak? You would know. We were dating at the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like I noticed it, though, and didn't really say anything because I wasn't sure if it... Yeah, I don't know if you had noticed it, but I remember seeing a teaser um, for it, I think, on a YouTube video I was watching, mm. and I was like, oh, God, we've got to watch this, and I showed it to you, and I think at the time, we didn't have HBO, so we got it through some nefarious mm, way or yeah, another. <laughs> some alternate means of acquiring the show. But uh, we made sure we watched the uh, initial airing, and... We were kind of glued to it. Yeah, it definitely made an impression. I, I remember my first impression of it was of the the Ravens because I think I was walking into Borders one day and there was this huge cardboard cutout of Sean Bean on the Iron Throne and then there were all the Ravens mm-hmm. and they used Ravens a lot, I think, on the paperback cover. Yeah. So that had a mystique to it that, that really appealed to me. Yeah, and it pressed Probably also, you know, we're both really big Lord of the Rings and Tolkien fans. And, you know, just seeing Sean Bean, you know, yeah. you think back to Boromir and it just had kind of a similar feel and look to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it kind of stirred that love of Middle Earth in me. Oh, yeah. At least. And that's 
one of the things that initially drew me to it. I think at that point, I can't remember where I heard this, if it was in Borders or elsewhere. And uh, just the fact that it was in Borders should be a testament to how long ago this was. Um, They said that it was an adult-oriented fantasy, Mm -hmm. which just right away I knew that was something I had to be involved in. Yeah, because we both love fantasy. so. So we started watching the show, I remember, and you might have to kind of fill me in on this point. We started watching the show, but we started reading the books from the series A Song of Ice and Fire pretty much immediately. So Yeah, we were only a few episodes in and I, I worked at the library at the time and I think I checked out the Yeah, first I think we both had a copy. No, I used your copy once you read it or once mm-hmm. you finished it because you finished it pretty fast. But either way, both of us finished it by maybe the fourth episode yeah. of the show somewhere in there. So we already knew what to expect with Ned and everything. Yeah, well... You know, the thing of it is, we, we really plowed through the series yeah. pretty quickly. So, I mean, I don't even think the show was in its second season by the time we finished yeah, the books that I, were available. I read the first two books, uh, Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings. Mm-hmm. Book two, yeah. I read those two very quickly, but then with the third one, I kind of slowed my pace. And for some reason, the fourth one took me... A few years to get through because I put it down at one point and Whoops. I didn't pick it back up until a lot later and then I kind of had to go back and remind myself of everything that had happened because you know it's just so rich with details yeah, absolutely. that you can't just pick it up a couple years later from where you left off it doesn't really work that way no. and that first book A Game of Thrones that was published in 1996 just to sort of put this in mm. to perspective so the show began in 2011 the first book was published in 1996. In fact, A Clash of Kings was published in 98, followed by A Storm of Swords in 2000, and then A Feast for Crows was in 2005, and then the fifth book, A Dance with Dragons, came out in 2011. For those of you guys and gals who may not know, A Song of Ice and Fire and also the television show Game of Thrones was inspired by, um, or at least according to the author, George R. R. Martin, it was inspired by the War of the Roses, which was an English civil war that was between uh, houses Plantagenet and York, if I recall, which um, I think there was a Yorkish victory there, and that eventually gave rise to the Tudors, uh, which pretty much everyone, I think, is probably familiar. At least in popular culture, the Tudors are probably pretty familiar to uh, to a lot of folks now. But anyway, um, the sort of sociologically driven and economically driven tale that is derivative of that sort of situation is... I think what played a lot into a Game of Thrones, a Song of Ice and Fire, and of course the show Game of Thrones, and uh, to me that was one of the major selling points of the program, and one of the reasons why I enjoyed it. Yeah, honestly, for me, I think what initially just reeled me in, because um, it's just visually, uh, like the costuming alone oh, yeah. had my attention. Because you could just tell how much uh, work and detail they had put into that. And I knew that it was going to be good just from that. Because you don't put that kind of work into um, the visual elements if you're not going to put the work into the story and the characters. Well, you would hope. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a real waste. So uh, with those things as the framework, um, I think for me as far as the series was concerned, and especially watching the first couple of episodes before I got into the first book, the the existence, or non-existence, I should say, of more traditional fantasy elements, such as wizards and spells. Mm-hmm. And there was a distinct lack of magic, but you were teased with the existence of the supernatural with the White Walkers mm-hmm. in the very first opening scenes of both the book and the show which was very cool because you immediately leave that and it's not addressed again for some time. So the first episode is entitled Winter is Coming, which are the stark words. And that was another thing that really just grabbed me. Mm -hmm. It's so ominous. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's like, you know, something big is going to go down. And it says a lot about the family too. In other ways, it reminds me of the story of, uh, is it the grasshopper and the ant? Is that the one where mm-hmm. the ant's fucking off all the time? Oh, I'm sorry. The grasshopper's fucking off yeah. and the ant's working hard because he knows that yeah. uh, 
that winter is coming he needs to get his food stores up yeah and that's kind of like the the contrast between the starks and um some of the other people in power especially in king's landing it's like they're all worried about you know who has power you know who has this title who has that title um who owns this um who is lord of this fiefdom exactly and you know while the starks are like guys seriously winter's coming get your shit together we need to buckle down and get ready for this yeah and you know it's just they're they're good words to live by as far as i'm concerned i mean fire and blood is kind of the the contrast to that and it's kind of fuck all yeah and winter is coming that can really refer to anything it doesn't have to mean literally winter right hard times are coming hard times adversity is coming Mm mm-hmm um, so you you get the hint of these things. You get a taste of Winterfell and what the Starks are all about. And you sort of, the world is introduced to you through the perception of the Starks. Does that sound right? Yeah, um, which is fitting because, you know, the story relies so heavily on where each individual Stark is going, you know, on their journey. Um, through the storyline so it makes sense that it starts and you know ends with the Starks they are they are our main point of view characters I think for the the brunt of the first couple of books if I recall Um, so that is that is pretty cool you get to know the world through the Starks Uh, and and in so doing you get the hints of this rich history and lore that surrounds uh, Westeros, um, not so much Essos at this point, but Westeros. And uh, for me, one of the hardest parts of getting into any fantasy or science fiction, despite the fact that I love the genres tremendously, you have to overcome the hurdle of being introduced to the world. And you either you either get into it or you don't. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, Martin is kind of like Tolkien in that he just... He puts so much detail and history into his work that, you know, you can't help but get, you know, very involved in the world itself in Westeros. Right. And for that reason, too, I I think that that's one of the I think that's one of the ways in which you kind of you really come to understand the uh, sociological and economical climate Mm. of Westeros. And you can kind of get a sense of, of where things are, maybe not necessarily where things are headed, but you understand at least where a lot of the friction and turmoil is coming from. Yeah. Um, because you not only have all these interpersonal relationships that you're dealing with, but you've got, you know, house against house, which, you know, kind of is, uh, is that situation, but magnified. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say that one thing, you know, as much as I love Tolkien, you know, he can be a bit stuffy in his writing, and that's one um, area in which I really do appreciate Martin is he fits so much, again, history and detail into his writing, but he's really good at pacing it and weaving it in so that you, you don't get bored with it. You know, it's, it's very well um, set up. Indeed. So I was... Actually, kind of going back a little bit, um, I have just become aware, or rather I was told, that uh, before the show actually had taken off, that um, the showrunners, David Binnenhoff and D.B. Weiss, actually had a very lengthy meeting with with Martin concerning getting the show off the ground and how they were going to do it, whether it would be a series of films or uh, you know a much longer television series. And speaking of all of the interpersonal relationships and all of the character development, mm-hmm. uh, from what I understand, after having read the books, or at least the first book, Martin had asked them if they knew who was the mother of Jon Snow. And I guess they had it figured out because that was kind of what, inspired Martin to go ahead with the project. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know if the whole thing depended on them being able to answer that question or not. Interesting. But, uh, but yeah, so yeah, David Benioff and DB Weiss, those are the showrunners for, or were the showrunners, I should say for HBO's game of Thrones series. Um, so you probably at this point, if you didn't know who those guys were before 
you probably have heard their names uh, a lot here lately um, after the show has ended. And, uh, you know, if there's one thing that I can say, though, about the show, and uh, and especially now that it's ended, there's one thing that the show gave us that I'll absolutely never forget. Um, and that was uh, the title theme that was composed uh, by Ramin uh, Jawadi, I believe his name is, Jawadi. And uh, that was epic and was probably worth having that show made alone, just, just to have that theme. Oh, yeah. And which also sets the stage and I think gives you a good idea of uh, the gravitas and the weight that, that the story is going to carry or does carry and will carry. Kind of lending to that, um, the show itself was shot primarily on location in, uh, in, in, in specific areas. So, well, I say on location like it was in Westeros, but the locations that they used, they were actually there and there wasn't a tremendous amount of green screen. Um, you know, being shot across Ireland. And yeah, I think that's part of what made it so good because, you know, nowadays you're just so used to seeing so much of that and you can pick it out. It hasn't gotten so good yet that you can't pick out the green screen, uh, green screened um, sets from the, from the real ones. And um, I, I really love that about Game of Thrones. Everything feels so natural. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I could probably talk at great length about the sets, um, the locations. You had mentioned the costumes before, mm-hmm. um, and that, again, is another thing. Michelle Clapton was the costume designer for Game of Thrones, and she actually worked on the show up to season five, and I think she came back for season seven and eight. So I guess maybe season six was the only one she didn't work on. She actually ended up winning an Emmy in 2012, 2014, and 16 for the costume design. So that actually says a lot. She deserves it. Yeah, the, the richness of the design is is incredible. So it's just an incredibly well-designed show all the way around. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking right now, I don't think I'm even remotely prepared to talk about Game of Thrones in its entirety because it, we're talking about something that spanned almost 10 years and is based on a series of books that hasn't even been completed. Um so uh, let's let's go ahead and move forward a little bit, and I'd I really like to talk about our personal experience with the show. I mean, I I remember being just so wrapped up in it and so involved and just completely in love with it for uh, probably about up until season four. And the reasons maybe why I say up until season four we can get into momentarily, but but uh, primarily I just I was enamored by it. Yeah, me too. I- what kept um, you involved in the first season and the first book? Well, I think we talked about before in our Harry Potter episode that I don't necessarily care for stories that, you know, just have the happy, everybody is, uh, turns out okay, everything's going to be all right feeling. Um, and that's one thing I loved about Game of Thrones is it, it felt so real and brutal because... You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be a fantasy. To be, the the world is brutal. It can be very brutal, and they brought that real world element into this uh, world of fantasy. And um, you know, it was dark, and I appreciate that. Right, not a lot of levity provided by the elves or hobbits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very very dark stuff, especially when you're dealing with. Um, family powerful families and and bureaucracy and that that never really breeds anything pleasant as far as i'm concerned um but yeah i I completely agree with you that's one of the reasons why i loved it so much the character dynamics were tremendous specifically i know that we tended to be most fixated on in no particular order but uh the house stark of course but then ned stark as a character and Jon Snow and the dynamic between them um, was something that I always thought was tremendous. And you had talked to me before about your feelings on Jon. So I was wondering if maybe you could share a little bit of that on the show and, and his relationship with Ned and, and how you appreciated uh, yeah. it. Yeah, Jon has always been probably my favorite character in Game of Thrones. Um, you know, there were moments when I didn't really care for where his story was going or I felt like they were kind of pushing him aside to uh, advance other characters' stories. 
and so he wasn't as interesting, but he's always remained my favorite character um, just because he was the character I could connect with the most. Um, just his relationship with his family, you know, he's kind of the outsider looking in. Uh, you know, his, his brothers and sisters love him, but he always um, is an outsider regardless. And Half brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. to be specific. I yeah. mean, that part is pretty important. Yeah, and that was kind of my childhood. You know, I had uh, my half-brothers, and we loved each other. But then, like, you know, with Catelyn, um, just there's there's no maternal love there for him. And I kind of had the same situation with my stepfather. And, you know, you just always felt on the outside you were around your family but you weren't part of it so i just i really connected with him in that way so i say interesting but that's what i meant to say was that's a very poignant thing to say or very yeah and that's why that's part of what made his character feel so real for me because that's not something you see a lot of with fictional characters not in that depth anyway and so i i guess i kind of latched on to him for the ride through the entire series you know i think um a lot of people probably felt similarly, or at least I should say, when you say you latched onto a character, I think that one of the things about this series is how people identified with and sort of found this affinity for particular characters. Game of Thrones is so rich in character and character development that there's someone for pretty much everyone <laughs> to identify right. with. And for me, you know, it was John, and even to the point where you know, he finally was like, you know, I need to remove myself. I'm not really a part of this place. So I'm going to go to the wall. And I kind of did the same thing. I removed myself from my household and went and lived my own life, you know. So it's just, and I'm sure there's a character you can identify with. Who do you feel oh, like you identify me. with most? <laughs> who, who oh, <laughs> God. Probably Oberyn Martell minus, you know, the Marshall badassery. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's... I'm not even going to pretend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Oberyn's awesome. There's just no getting around the fact. I mean, he's... Okay, like, to put it simply, I think one of the reasons why I like Oberyn so much is because he's so diverse in his interests. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he was studying... I mean, just as an example, he was studying to become a maester, almost became one. It was like, nah. <laughs> you know, I'd rather stab people. You know, uh, so he's incredibly studied. He's incredibly well versed in in lore and academia, but that's not his primary area of focus, which I think is tremendously cool. Yeah, and also, you know, the fierce devotion to your wife. He does have that. <laughs> he does have that. Unfortunately, it didn't really work out for him. Yeah. Um, Do you also but, hold uh, a wicked grudge? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do. As a matter. I hold several wicked grudges, as a matter of fact, and I've definitely been sharpening blades, um, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, of course, <laughs> to, uh, to exact bloody retribution. Um, well, I, hope, I hope you don't meet a similar end. To- yeah, well, you know what they say. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Um, you know, but... Uh, I say Oberyn because he's the first one that came to mind. But like you said, there are so many characters that people probably identify with. Oberyn is certainly not the only one for me and might not even be the best one for me. It's just the one that came most to mind because he's so interesting. I think he's such an interesting character and and so nuanced. Yeah. Um, And it was a shame things worked out the way they did. See, I see you as more of a Ned Stark, honestly. Mm, You think so? Yeah. Maybe these days. I mean, you know, when you first say it and say you're a staunch follower of the rules, you're like, no, this is what the book says. This is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> you should see me DM. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're very by the book, you know, and um, any deviation from the book. <laughs> oh, yes. come on. That does make me sound a little rigid. Though. I know. It seems, it seems very strange to say about you, but I don't know. I see you mm. as more of a Ned Stark. Maybe you're a combination of the two. Maybe it's the beard. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Those aren't bad characters to be compared to remotely. I mean, yeah. and they both just get fucked. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing I've got going for me. Um, so speaking of that, the character attachment and character development um, and sort of living vicariously through some of these individuals, I think um, 
Daenerys is another one of those characters. Daenerys Targaryen, mother of dragons, breaker of chains, so on and so forth. Um, I know that the dynamic between she and Khal Drogo was certainly of interest. And, uh, oh, yeah. I think I people were really... <laughs> yeah. I love some Khal Drogo. <laughs> they were really about it. And, I mean, it, it does, at first blush, it was pretty rapey. Um, and I was... The book, yeah. it wasn't right. They made it that way for the show. In the book, you know, he you didn't get the sense that she completely got a choice, but he wanted to make it about her choice, right? You know, and and the uh, that's one thing I did not care for that they did in the show. Um, I guess they had a reason for it, but it played off much better in the books. I thought so too. There was a lot more. It it all seemed very rash and barbaric, but mm-hmm. the sort of sensitivity that they brought to it or rather i should say that martin brought to the scene mm-hmm. before they actually uh, actually consummated quote unquote i guess the marriage yeah was far more tender yeah um it, it was he just pulled that whole thing off so much better than they did with the show yeah that was a little upsetting yeah. um but i mean it didn't didn't spoil things but it definitely kind of riled me up a little bit whenever people got their panties in a twist about um, you know, what's appropriate on television. And, you know, yeah. I mean, that was one thing about the show, I will say, looking back, it, there were some controversies generated by uh, not necessarily the levels of sex and violence, but sexual violence, I think, was a big thing for people. Well, and, you know, there's plenty of that in the books to work with. It's like, why change that scene, which was one of the best scenes in the first book, in my opinion, because... Mm-hmm you know, what you're expecting to happen versus what happens really surprises you. Right. Yeah, and that's that's certainly one thing that you can say for the entire series, at yeah. least up to its current state, and then, of course, the, uh, the show. Um, so very quickly, I do want to say that the first two seasons, from my understanding and, and my my interpretation, the first two seasons were straight-up adaptations of their respective novels. So the first season was a game of Thrones. The second season was a clash of Kings. And then I think beginning in the third season, it was considered more of an adaptation of the whole series. Yeah. Um, so at this point, and you know, season four, they just started losing control. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I do want to say, we're kind of, we're, we're talking about this and the assumption is that anyone listening has seen the show or at least read the books or any mix and matched combination thereof. So what we've got essentially is, uh, you know, you've got this character, Ned Stark, that we've talked about. He and his family are more or less ousted from Winterfell because the king of the Seven Kingdoms, his longtime friend and comrade in arms, has, uh, has basically come to ask him to help him run the Seven Kingdoms. Right, right. And that's that's basically the entire plot of the first book and what gets the story moving. He, uh, he, Ned Stark begrudgingly accompanies him back to King's Landing, becomes handed the king, discovers that shit is just totally fucked up in the continent and is doing his best to fix all of the problems that are taking place. Um, Ned Stark was never meant for politics. <laughs> no. He was meant for yeah. battle and family. Those yeah. were his two strong points. Exactly. And for lording over a very small territory. Yeah, warden of the north. Yes. So that's essentially what gets the whole thing moving, is the the nest of, of snakes and sinister figures that Ned uncovers when he moves to King's Landing. Unbeknownst to them all, um, Things are happening in the north-north, beyond the wall, that is going to work out very poorly for the entire world, so to speak. So that's that's the the plot of the series in a nutshell. Um, so the first two seasons, again, were based uh, on their respective books, and, and with the third kind of starting to adapt most of the overarching story, which once you get into A Storm of Swords, I don't really feel that that's true to say about this book, but... Once you move past that into A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, those two books, which are massive in and of themselves, actually run along side by side. So it makes sure, I mean, it makes sense that you have to do that because Feast for Crows uh, completely excludes some major characters. Mm -hmm. And you can't just, on a show, you can't just leave them behind and put them aside. um, It just 
it doesn't work well for that format. Right. Which the more you mention that and the more we talk about it, I'm starting to be a little bit more forgiving for that reason. Mm-hmm. It would have been very difficult to film in a in a linear fashion. Yeah, my my only real beef with um I think it was season mainly season four. Um I just felt like, you know, they had I, I get that they had so much that they had to cover and it was impossible to get to it all. But I felt like they were focusing on the wrong things. You know, they Is there an example you can think of? Not not uh, specifically. I just remember thinking it has been a that while. when I was watching it at the time. And I was like, why why are we following this little uh, plot line when this is so much more important? Right. But, um, you know, with the first two books, the plot line was a lot more condensed. It was simpler. And then it starts expanding. So I get that it got a little out of control, but, you know, I just think they should have focused on different aspects of the story. And that was around the time that we stopped watching it. I think Mm -hmm. that we stopped after the fourth season. It might have been the fifth. I think we watched a couple episodes of the fifth and then we just stopped. Yeah. Is the fifth with the one with the mountain? The fourth season, I think, is the Viper in the Mountain. See, that's one of my favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it wasn't the whole season no. that I took issue with. It was just overall. Um, and I believe season it was seven ended up being one of my favorites. Yeah. Even though I felt like the first two were far more true to the source material. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And I didn't expect that to happen. I'm glad that we finally started watching it again, especially now that it's over. So little history on that. I felt, and you can chime in at any point and tell me if you feel the same or differently. um, I felt like after that fourth season, once you started getting into the fifth, like you mentioned, I just, I didn't really care about the show. It, it felt to me like, as you said, it, it just started, it felt like it was coming apart And one sign to me that something is coming apart is when you throw ass and tits into a scene when it doesn't really need to be there. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, God, we're losing code red. Look at some tits. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll keep watching this show. (laughs) Yeah, and there are, uh, you know, plenty of moments in this story where that is appropriate. Like when you're building up the character of Tyrion Lannister, you know, ass and tits play a very big part of... He is the god of tits his, <laughs> Yeah, his character long. development. And Oberyn Martell and his wife, he, it helps you to understand who they are and how they jive. But um, otherwise, you know, it's not always necessary. And you could tell that they were overusing... Yeah, the gratuitous use of sex and violence post-season mm-hmm. four just... I know it may sound backwards that I would not be interested in that sort of thing. But no, it, it was kind of a turnoff because believe it or not, I watched it because it was a wonderful story and I wanted to see that continue. From about season four through six, the the only thing that really carried me through that was Arya's storyline. Mm, yeah, because it's She carried me through those three badass. seasons. And then, of course, over in Martell in season four or five, whichever. I think it was four. Yeah, he. I, I love his character. He's one of my favorite characters. And speaking of, um, I would say that episode, that that scene. You know which one I'm talking about. Mm, yeah. That Good. was probably the most difficult moment in the entire series, the books and the show for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, even over the Red Wedding, even over Ned Stark. I mean, you, you can't help but love Oberyn Martell and what drives him. And um, that that was the hardest part for me. Yeah, the Red Wedding the red wedding was a shock. To yeah, read it that, it was a shock. And even though we knew what was coming, when we saw it, it was still a shock just because it's so terrible. With yeah. the mountain and Oberyn Martell, it wasn't so much a shock as it was just incredibly disappointing. It really was, because I didn't feel like 
I kind of felt like George Martin was being George Martin there, and he knew that that would hurt you. <laughs> I've got a reputation to, to live up to. <laughs> yeah. But I felt that death was so unnecessary because, I mean, that is in a, just an immaculate character, and I felt like we really lost something by mm-hmm. not getting to see him developed any further or have any hand in everything that was to come and to yeah. see how he could aid you know, the, peop- the, char- the other characters that we love because you know he would. Well, as far as the show is concerned, it's a bummer because what the fuck happened to Dorn? Like, yeah, Dorn <laughs> just kind of like left on yeah. the sideline. <laughs> it's like, you know, we had this character from Dorn. He had this tiff with his brother who was basically sitting on his hands and yeah. Sunspear. Didn't want to really do anything. And that was a big political point or plot mm-hmm. point in A Song of Ice and Fire, and then it was just sort of like, oh, yeah, let's just move on. Yeah, I mean, they started to get into it with the retaliation of the Sand Snakes and yeah. um, Oberyn's wife, but they kind of just let it fall Whoops. off the cliff. Yeah, and just kind of yeah. hang in there. So, reasons yeah. why we kind of abandoned the television show after a certain point, um, which, of course, found no real solid resolution, I should say, mm-hmm. in the television show. Um, so here's the thing. I don't really want to spend too much time in this episode talking about why I didn't like it or reasons why I thought the last season did not satisfy or may have even been not good, (laughs) you know, like, which, um, which I, I still, I was still entertained by it. I still enjoyed it. Um, but comparatively speaking, I don't think that they had enough source material to draw from to flesh it out. Oh, yeah. It's it's so clear where the source material drops off and they are just winging it based on a few um, suggestions and plot points from Martin. And, you know, I, I honestly feel like all the backlash is unfair because it, to me, Martin is like, the Tolkien of our time. He is a very unique and capable storyteller and his stories just have so much detail. They're so rich and he is just phenomenally good at weaving them perfectly together. And to expect other storytellers to be capable of the same, it's just, it's not fair because right. he's a once in a blue moon storyteller. And, and here's the thing here, when, when we get into this, this is, I don't want to make this a separate discussion because I think if we're going to have it now's as good a time as any, mm-hmm. when you get into divisiveness, as you know, I'm a fan of a certain franchise that has experienced a little bit of that sort of divisive situation uh climate yes star wars um (laughs) and i've made peace with certain aspects of it um however one of the things i've noticed is that everybody has a fucking opinion and in this internet era of twitter and facebook and instagram and all of that you have some really strong opinions Mm -hmm. you've got some well-developed opinions you have some strong well-developed opinions and then you have some opinions that are just not good and just downright ignorant, hateful, and uh, just just need to disappear completely as far as I'm concerned. Um, but what's interesting is that camps have developed, in my opinion, where you have apologists uh, who are in love with a franchise and will defend it, even though it might be bad. They'll defend it because they don't want it to be bad and or can't admit that maybe it wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the people who, you know, their critical opinion doesn't really mean a whole lot because it's clearly coming from a place of in- ignorance and under education in the fields of, of creative storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just have this big mess and yeah. there's no wrong or right. There's no real good or bad except for the group, you know, that I talked about before, especially in star Wars, the, uh, the hate mongering misogynistic type, they can just fuck off and die. Um, there's not really any clear demarcation other than where you stand as a fan and what your personal opinion is. Yeah, I guess with with Game of Thrones, at least, I just fall kind of in between the cracks. It's like, you know, I was not very satisfied by um, season eight. I was left with a very meh feeling. (laughs) But um, at the same time, I understand why it was like that. 
and I'm also just kind of happy to have an ending and know where it's going just in case right. George Martin doesn't finish. And now that being said, I'd say just to put my feelings in a nutshell, I like how it ended. I liked all the care, even what happened with Danny. I thought that was appropriate. And I liked what happened with the Starks. I was very happy with all of that. I just didn't care for how they arrived there. Right. I'm glad you said that because that is pretty much exactly how I feel. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times you hear about life and all about, you know, the story or a story, I should say, is that it's not about the it's not about the final moment. It's not about the end. It's about the journey, right? Yeah. yeah. And in the case of season 8, I th- I thought they the really journey took was away from the journey. Yeah, they might have screwed the pooch a little bit on yeah. that one. Um There's so many wonderful um, character developments were just allowed to fall through, like Arya and her learning um, you know, to be a faceless, yeah, faceless man. Yeah, it's like that never came to fruition. That never really came to anything, and that was so important, you know, to her character. And you know, we know she's an assassin, and that came to some fruition. But like, how did they get there? They didn't explain it. They were just like, oh, these things happen, but we don't have right. to explain it to you. Well, you know, and, and it, again, all of this stuff I think is tied into the point that you made about the lack of source material mm. or the lack of original source material. Um, because at this point, you know, these folks are trying to tie this story together and end it without the richness of what should have been two more books or at least one more book. And, and I will say before, <laughs> before I forget, just in case anyone did not know, David Benioff wrote with uh, Skip Woods X-Men Origins Wolverine. So yeah, this is yeah, this is the guy, folks, that brought us that train wreck of a fucking movie. Yeah. And uh I'm I'm just you know what? That's all I'm gonna say on that. Look it up, it's a fact. Let's move on. Yeah, you know, I also have a little theory, um, because they are now taking up the helm with uh the continuation of the Star Wars franchise. Um, it kind of feels like, you know, oh we've been doing Game of Thrones for so long. And now we can put the Star Wars notch on our belt. That's a huge deal. So let's hurry up and get this over with so we can get on board with that. Like maybe it was rushed. You know, it's yeah. funny because we were, I think we were, it was either right after we watched the season series finale or during our second viewing of it where you said that. And it was so funny because it had never occurred to me that maybe this was at play and it's funny because I was on Twitter a few days later. Actually, it was longer than a few days. And I saw that somebody had posted something with her. Like, I was wondering how long it would take for people to start blaming uh, Star Wars for the end of Game of Thrones. And I kind of felt like that was an unfair dig because it was like, dude, look at it critically. Okay, like, let's take off the nerd glasses for a minute. And let's take our love for these things away for just a minute and let's be objective and that to me as a fan that's one of the hardest things to do is to be objective about something that leaves a bad taste in your mouth like for example with star wars when i saw the last jedi you and i went to see it together and i was just like blown away in my seat while i was watching it you know that was all fandom that was all like oh here's the fanfare here's the crawl oh fuck me finally (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's like after that you know um I think even in my seat when we saw uh, Leia fly across space, I was like, huh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing the white guy blink. Um, and I was like, but okay. And then I kept watching the movie and it kept being amazing and fantastic. And and then, yeah, after I left and went to bed and woke up, I was like, huh, yeah. well, I'm a Star Wars fan, so <laughs> I love it. And I was like, oh, well, maybe it's, maybe I didn't love it. <laughs> <laughs> I was good because I'm just like straight up Raylo trash. So yeah, that well, movie you know, did everything I needed. It yeah, to. if if that if that did it for you, then by all means, I'm I'm very happy. But I, I only <laughs> mention that as an example of how sometimes, as a fan, especially a diehard fan, which I think I am, sometimes you just have to say, okay, critically, guys, that wasn't good. And you know, to kind of paraphrase Stephen King, I know that because I personally have done better. And I'm not that good, (laughs) you know? 
and, and we'll, you know what, we'll table the, the Star Wars discussion because I don't want to yeah. intermix that with too much negativity. I think I personally have said everything that I want to say about The Last Jedi. Um, so I don't want to be or to bring negativity into that. And honestly, let me just go ahead and say right now that I'm not shitting on anything. You know, clearly the creators of these respective movies and or television shows are very good at what they do for them if you don't count Wolverine and, you know, are, are where they are for a reason. But I do think that as someone who creates and writes and you yourself are a writer, I think it's important at least to be able to, to challenge something and say, hey, it's not the end of the world, obviously, as some people think it is. But as a person who dabbles in what you do for a living, sirs and or ma'ams, I, I feel that you could have done a little better. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. With that being said, are we looking forward to the spinoffs? What are even the spinoffs? We don't really <laughs> know yet, except that one of them takes place a thousand years before the right. Iron Throne was forged. Which I think George Martin had said something about savvy fans should pick up their copies of Blood and Fire or Fire and Blood or whatever, or if you wanted to have an idea of what it was going to be mm-hmm. about, that you should read those. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm guessing that that's, that's where they're at. Um, I don't know, because I was so invested in these characters. I just I don't know that I'll be made to care. You know? Yeah. I don't, I'll just have to see. And I don't, I don't really think over the course of this discussion that we've really given too many spoilers um, yeah, for the show. What do you say? Do you, want to, do you want to talk a couple of spoilers, or do you just want to kind of give it a general meh? and move on um i mean maybe we can talk yeah let's go ahead and talk the big points okay big things that went down that really changed the course of because it is important it is important important because the one character in particular where they end up or rather the last thing you see in my opinion could tie into one of the new spinoffs the idea is this series finale um daenerys kills everyone in king's landing big shocker no, um, John can't have it. Kills Daenerys. Grey Worm can't have that, so he takes Jon Snow prisoner, and then um, they send Jon to the Wall. Per now King Bran's order, uh, Arya fucks off into the West, into the sunset, so to speak, because she wants to know what's west of Westeros. And uh, Drogon, after Jon Snow murders Daenerys in his arms, melts down the Iron Throne and fucks off with Daenerys in his clutches. So. All of that that I right, so all of that that I just described all that very quickly that was basically the last two episodes of Game of Thrones. Minus one point. Sansa returns to Winterfell. Ah, yes. and Declares that they will remain independent and becomes Queen of the North. So a whole, uh, actually not a whole, just a very tiny bit of story for over two hours of my life. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's that's what happens, folks. Um, Bran the Broken is now king of the six kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Sansa is, uh, I guess, ruler. I, w- I want to say queen, but I don't know if that would be the right word. Queen of the North. Queen of the North. And uh, John has fucked off beyond the wall. And, and we all know he's going to be king beyond the wall. Yeah, and even if he's, he's not, gonna he's going to be good because yeah. Tormund was waiting up there yeah. all giddy-like. John and Ghost finally had their sweet reunion. <laughs> yeah. Ghost finally got yeah. a pet. So that's that's what happens. And the reason why I mention uh, potential spinoff material is because, from what I understand, there are going to be three spinoffs, one of which is, from what I understand, going to be based on Fire and Blood. And that leaves, in my mind, the possibility open for Arya to have her own show. They've already confirmed that that will that's, not be. That's not going to happen? Oh, that's too bad. Well, then I really have no reason to watch any of them. Yeah. Now that I think about it. I have no interest in the Targaryens, to be honest with you. Yeah, kind of a bunch of assholes. <laughs> yeah. Brooding assholes. Um, yeah. You know, and Danny's story, it kind of ended exactly the way I saw that coming. Um, and, you know, it was actually brilliant in a way because you have all this character development and they're right. building her up to be the savior of the people and then it all just comes back. That's so Jar- George Martin. Right. Like, I saw it coming from That's the macrocosmic way. Martin right there. But it was right also there. beautiful. That's the kind of story I love. It doesn't have to be perfect. There doesn't have to be a happy ending. I mm-hmm. want the realistic ending. I, I want you to break my heart when you're telling your story, you know, because that feels real to me. That's epic. That's what epic is. Right. You know? No, I agree. I agree completely. 
And anybody that did not see that coming, I think, should probably go back and <laughs> rewatch the series. Or with your eyes open. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many times Daenerys made it very clear that she would essentially burn the world to cinders to take what was hers. Yeah, and she's so focused. You know, she she puts on the pretense of being about the people, but what it all boils down to is her focus on that throne. Right. And, you know, I think the moment that sold that the hardest was when she took Sansa aside and, you know, it was like, we need to talk. And, you know, everything was going well. She was trying to mend their uh, relationship. Um, that was a great scene. And I knew, I, it, I knew for sure that that's where it was going the second Sansa said, what about the North? And Danny's smile falters, her hand jerks away from Sansa's hand, and you see this twitch in it. It's like, <laughs> there's the madness, it's beginning. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, and, and that and that to me was all very telling. So I was not remotely shocked when King's Landing surrendered and she burnt it to the ground. Yeah, and you know, that was, that was part of season eight, and they did some things very well. Um, you know, there was symbolism, there were, there were hints, uh, the character development was pretty good for the most part. Cinematically, it was was beautiful. Yeah, it was really just the things they left out. Uh, I don't know, it felt half finished, you know, and the one episode I don't, I know a lot of people had an issue with the final episode because the first part kind of has a lot going on, but the second part, um, doesn't so much. They're all trying to figure out. You know who's going to rule what, how things are going to go down um, at the end, or what to do with the remains, um, and that kind of felt natural to me. It's like you know, so much has happened, so much violence, so much uh, hardship, and and now it's just it's done, and they have to rebuild what's left, and there's just like this shuffling of feet because they've been through so much trauma. And now everything is seemingly okay for a while. And it's like, how, how do you move on from that? And there's, and I think that's really well played out in the scene where Tyrion is in the, um, what do they call the? The small council chamber. The small council chamber, yeah. And, um, you know, he's just fussing over like <laughs> the setting of the chairs. It's like, yeah. they don't have that much to do. And it felt yeah. it's natural. Like there's. I think in the eighth season, one thing they did well is kind of putting you in the shoes of the characters. Like, you know, a lot of people had issue also with how dark the um, the battle with the Night King was and how you can see The long that. night. Yeah, the long night. And um, I thought it was brilliant because it's like it really puts you in that feeling of frustration and fear. It's like, I can't see what's happening, you know. I mean, that's mm-hmm. terrifying and frustrating but you got to kind of see from the point of view of the characters just how awful that was. Yeah, I, I felt the same about that. I, I've since learned that there may have been some technical tomfoolery as far as the production and the reception of that episode was concerned, and perhaps it actually wasn't meant to be that dark. Yeah. But even that said, and if that's true, I think that it still works. Um, and if they would have intentionally made it as dark as possible, that still would have been fine because it worked so well mm-hmm. for this. I felt confused and disoriented and scared. And that's how you would be. I mean, they, you know, they had to gear up for this battle that they were barely prepared for. And you're mm-hmm. battling forces that are, you know, unnatural and so, or supernatural, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can't really prepare yourself for it. And then it's at night and the Night King has control over the forces of winter, and it's, it's sure. so disorienting. Yeah, and, you know, we didn't even really mention the fact that that whole story arc came to an abrupt close <laughs> and didn't seem to fucking matter one bit. Yeah, they, they could have handled that better <laughs> to have made it matter more, for sure. Um, because it was just like, okay, that's done, on to the next thing. Right, let's just close this on out. Yeah, and I... And, you know, I've noticed that we've, we've really gone back and forth in our conversation about how great this show is mm-hmm. and then how it really started to fall apart. Mm-hmm. But then we go back to how great the show it, is. It really had its ups and its downs. Yeah, absolutely. But the books are immaculate. Oh, yeah. Thus far. Thus, <laughs> thus, thus far. far. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if anything has come out of all of this... 
um, and has, has made itself or rather has made the whole thing uh, worthwhile is, is one. I think it's the, uh, the theme that, that we received from the television show. Um, but then the situation itself was kind of lightened by Steven Soderbergh and writer Rebecca Blunt's comedy, Logan Lucky, wherein Dwight Yoakam's warden has to uh, drop knowledge from a Wikipedia page about a song of ice and fire upon some restless and rioting inmates, which is just a scene of pure comedy gold because it resonates so true. You, the, the frustration there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably one of my favorite scenes from any movie ever. Yeah, and and actually, I think we're gonna include that in the beginning of this episode. So hopefully, we'll have that audio because I really wanted to use that as the intro because it really kind of it's it's funny, it's poignant, and it really just kind of it coalesces. I think the the frustration felt by a lot of people towards Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, but in conclusion, I guess, uh, gosh, well, I mean, what can I say about about the show? It's it's on the whole, it is epic. I try not to use that word too much, but epic. The it was a cinematic masterpiece, superb and convincing performances on behalf of every person involved in the show. Uh, the genuine location shoots that you're seeing the the breathtaking musical scores and and the masterful composition of that music it's compelling and uh it's compelling in its own ambition and magnitude i think and i mean it's a story about people their hopes and dreams uh destiny and and uh belonging and and uh betrayal and retribution it's i mean and ultimately it's about politics yeah people stressed about right now (laughs) wherever you have people you'll have politics and Mm -hmm. vice versa there's no getting away from it but as far as this episode excuse me as far as it goes i think i think that's pretty much a wrap i feel like we've covered everything (laughs) we've covered a lot yeah we've covered a lot as much as you can when talking about all of it at once yeah again it's it's on the books now and maggie is going to create a beautiful graphic for the episode. So if anything, you're going to have a beautiful piece of cover art for the episode. And we can say that we did a Game of Thrones episode and nobody can bother me about it. So yeah, there you go. (laughs) Thanks, Maggie. A big thanks once again to Maggie for joining me for this Game of Thrones episode. The Sleeping Giant podcast really wouldn't be what it is without her assistance. She really does a lot to get the show off the ground, provides all of the graphics that we use for our cover art on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. She does a wonderful job with that, and I'm very grateful to have her assistance with that. And for those of you that are interested in checking out what she has to offer as far as art goes, be it licensed or uh, personal art, you can check her out on Instagram at Maggie underscore Ransom. Very cool, very much worth your time, and I ain't just saying that. Once again, folks, we we are huge fans of the show. I know at times, as fans, especially when you are extremely passionate about something, you can tend to be a little harsh. It certainly isn't our intention to convey that we dislike the show or you know thought that the last season was utterly terrible in any way. It just... It's not the case. We love the show. We love the books. We're huge fans. I just think every now and then a little criticism is, of course, necessary. I mean, nothing is perfect, right? And I I understand also that nothing is going to satisfy everyone all of the time. So sometimes it is what it is, as the kids say these days. At least I think the kids say that these days. Who, Who the fuck knows what they say these days? Anyway, we have a voicemail from Mr. Mike Winks that I would like to play for you all now. We're going to listen to that, and of course, I'm going to offer my response to that afterwards. So, let's go ahead and get that on. Hello, Grayson, and listeners to the Sleeping Giant podcast. Mike over here, across the pond in Wales. My thoughts on the Game of Thrones finale. Two words I'd say are brave and bold. I got up to watch it at 2 a.m. UK time, same broadcast time as one of the coasts of the States, and was a little bit disappointed, to be honest, on that viewing. Um, I felt they 
they pushed the two major events with the death of Daenerys and Drogon destroying the Iron Throne too soon in the middle of the episode and we were then left with a what seemed a bit of a pastiche of the end of Return of the King with lots of different endings but to be honest on a subsequent viewing uh, the normal broadcast time in the UK 9 o'clock on a Monday night I did enjoy it a little bit more I think the old adage of leaving the viewer wanting more was uh, was definitely the case um, we didn't really get anything wrapped up to a great extent but overall in terms of recent shows that have ended Breaking Bad I think is still my number one for the best ending Lost I've gone back and watched that ending having been disappointed when it was first broadcast but I'd say a pretty satisfactory ending for Game of Thrones overall I don't understand really the criticism that it's had from you know various various uh, opinions online uh, has been an excellent show overall and they simply had to wrap things up within a shorter period for whatever reason but it will go down as a, a very good TV show overall uh, thanks for asking for my opinion and uh, hello to you all huge thanks to you Mike for submitting that voicemail I sincerely appreciate that and I appreciate you offering your opinion to us and uh, I definitely agree with you about the the return of the king of the end of Game of Thrones. In fact, the end of the book there, or towards the end of the book, I should say, there is a chapter and it is called Many Partings, which feels very appropriate. They did have a lot to resolve and a very small amount of time in which to do it. Now, I had read or heard, perhaps anecdotally, that the showrunners, Pinehoff and Weiss, were offered ample time or rather however much time they felt they needed to resolve Game of Thrones with the timeline or plotline rather I should say that Martin had provided them and they elected to do it in six episodes. Now I'm not sure first if that's true completely and I'm not sure why they felt that six was the appropriate number when I honestly feel that it required just a little bit more. So I'm, I'm not really sure. Again, I'd, I'd like to get to the bottom of that. So if any of you all know what the truth of that is, or rather where that interview took place, I would definitely like to uh, to confirm that. Again, Mike, thank you so much for submitting that voicemail. And you all, if you like Doctor Who, you need to check out Mike's podcast. It's the Doctor Who file, excuse me, the Doctor Who Target Files podcast. And I know you can find that on Apple Podcasts, so check it out. I have no doubt that you will enjoy it. That is it, y'all. That is our show for this month. At the time of this recording, I haven't yet found the subject for our next episode or secured a guest, so if you would like to be on the show or you have an idea of what you may like to hear me or Maggie and me tackle, feel free to shoot me a message on Instagram at the Sleeping Giant Podcast or hit me up on Twitter at TSG underscore pod. Facebook is always an option as well. You can look for the Sleeping Giant Podcast there and uh, feel free to shoot me a message. Once more, I've been your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte. Thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant Podcast and until next time, y'all.